0: Welcome to Extreme Pragmatism. Today we'll discuss a topic that is growing in importance. Academics and politicians alike have talked about it for years, but it's only just begun. Income inequality will define the next generation if we let it. But what does it look like? Is the United States the land of opportunity? And what can we do about it in the short term and the long term? That's what new co-hosts Nicolattin and Bryant discuss in this episode. Let's talk. Welcome back to Extreme Pragmatism. Um, Now you won't actually have to listen to just me talk. We now have a co-host, my good friend Nicolette Marasa. Um, Today we'll be talking about an issue that is bad now and it will only continue to get worse in the next couple decades. And it's an issue that's very near and dear to my heart and definitely Nicolette's, Um, income inequality. You'll find that on a lot of presidential um, platforms, especially in the Democratic Party, you'll see that it's the central tenet of most of their campaigning. You see that in Andrew Yang who began as a fringe candidate has become very much not that and you'll see it across the board as we continue to run through the election cycle. So Nicolette why don't you introduce yourself.
1: Hey guys, I'm Nicolette Marasa. I'm a student at Roosevelt University studying social entrepreneurship. I'm currently living in the Chicagoland area and working on trying to Reduce the same amount of problems that Bryant's working on right now. Very interested in everything to do with sustainability and creating impact in the community. Um, yeah, that's me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so, you know, le- leading off that, people, income inequality is a very broad and academic term and people often don't know how to associate it with something unless they've witnessed it themselves or they understand the difference between someone who's extremely wealthy and someone who's not and you felt that in the past couple weeks when you took a trip to Austin to visit a friend so do you want to explain what happened and just how closely linked the affluent and not so affluent groups were literally like physically how close they were linked because I thought that was really interesting in summing it up
1: yeah absolutely um You see a lot of this happening in urban areas, but um, it's becoming more of an issue in younger cities. So, for example, with Austin, uh, last, last week traveled to Austin, Texas for South by Southwest, one of the biggest music film festivals in the country. And with that comes a lot of... Partying and excitement, a lot of which happens um, on Sixth Street in downtown. In downtown, um, there's different there's different parts. You get rainy Street, you get Sixth Street. Uh, some people re- uh, refer to it as Dirty Sixth or Dirty West. When you hop over onto Sixth Street in Trinity. You start to see where the divide is most prevalent. There is actually a homeless shelter that's placed right on the border of these bars. So you have a, I would say, six or seven block stretch of bars where people are hanging out, enjoying themselves, having cocktails, talking, socializing in the streets, and then a block over you have a homeless shelter that's significantly overcrowded. People are sleeping on the street, around the area, um, walking up to other people in the street, begging for money, and getting ridiculed. Um, It's a very, very interesting environment especially if you're not used to seeing um, (laughs) something like a homeless shelter near what would be considered a social situation Um, they're definitely there's a definite amount of pain for those, for those people to be able to see all of that excitement going on and not be able to feel comfortable enough or feel stable enough to act in the way that everyone else is. And so you see a lot of acting out, you see a lot of um, throwing objects in the street, cursing, and there just isn't enough space between the two. Which some would argue, well, this is a great thing because people are now seeing, like, what's going on in the economy. But at the same time, it's, like, not an effective place to put a homeless shelter. Like, these people need to feel that they're safe. They need to feel that they can find a sanctuary that is most comfortable for them. Where they can actually start to get back on their feet. And so, you can see where the general... Everyday. What's the word that I'm looking for? Like, the excitement, the entertainment world has invaded. Yeah. People's home life, people's everyday people, people that are just trying to be comfortable in their own home. It's quite sad.
0: Especially when that's in your general surroundings, like you. are not going across town to see it. You're literally going one A street over. A street over. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's really, you know, we see this everywhere. It's in every community, and it's from, you know, my community in the Quad Cities and definitely Chicago. If you look at areas like Pilsen, which, you know, I, I've learned a lot about in my short amount of time here, it's very stark. You know, this difference between the haves and the have-nots, and it hasn't always been that way. Right. People, when you know, politicians, when they talk about what's the backbone of American life, right, it's always the middle class. It's always the working class. And it's always so surprising to me Hearing those things because, honest to God, you and I both haven't really grown up in an era where that was necessarily true. We've seen that vision of America kind of decay mm-hmm. because the middle class has become less and less. You know, I was lucky enough to be in a household where we started on the lower end of the totem pole and were able to work our way through through the middle class. And that's how it's supposed to be, right? The idea of the American dream. thats That's, you know, what people move to America for. That's what people want when they raise kids here right absolutely but it was amazing to me and it's it's it was definitely a stark learning experience for me i've seen it throughout my community but it's only so odd when you when you see it in your own home you see what you expect out of the american dream someone working hard and getting you know building a better life and then you look out and you're like that person's working just as hard it's amazing when you actually hear these stories and it's like, this person's working just as hard, but they didn't have the same result. And I think that's what got me intrinsically interested in it, is because what should be was in my household. And what shouldn't be was everything, almost everything else. And I felt like that was extremely wrong. As you as we, you begin to get out in the community, you know whatever community is, whether it's my community, your community, or a place like Austin, where near, neither of us are from, mm-hmm. It's stark. It's amazing to see these people that, you know, you meet them and you talk to them and it's like, you work, you work your ass off and they do, but it doesn't really matter. They're up against it. And I think that's one thing, you know, that's the reason I think it was, it was best to lead with that story is because it's so stark when you see it and it doesn't matter what age you are. I mean, you probably would have that same visceral reaction when you're 45 as when you're 24 and that's the crazy thing. People, there's just generally, whether it's willful or not, there's ignorance about it. And, you know, I think the big thing is, you know, both you and I are very interested in technology. We're very interested in that and your personal ventures and I'm starting a media company. I mean, we're very interested in leveraging technology to do different things. And I think the irony of that is that we're lucky enough to be able to leverage those things, but it's also those things that are cutting out jobs and you know that leads that leads me to our, to my next point it's the idea that automation like the awareness about automation is very very poor you know uh i watched an interview on uh, joe rogan joe rogan had andrew yang on. andrew yang's the 2020 presidential candidate and he talked with truck drivers truck drivers uh they they pay pretty well, you know. That's that's a very middle class job. Yeah. It's fifty to seventy thousand a year. Yeah, I
1: know a couple of my friends' dads that are truck yeah. drivers.
0: Yeah, it's it's hard. It's grueling work,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but it's it's very middle class.
1: hmm
0: I mean, that's what our middle class should look like. But there's just, once again, whether it be willful willful or not, it's it's hard to it's hard to gauge that. These truck drivers don't believe that a self-driving semi is going to take their job. And I think that's a really, really important thing. And I know, you know, I I want you to talk about it a little bit because like you work you worked at Nordstrom. You you had the very personal experience of of helping people find the right fit and stuff. Yeah. And what you're trying to do is leverage artificial intelligence to make it more accurate, but it's also it's also automation at work, right?
1: Absolutely. So with um I specialized in fitting women for bras at Nordstrom, and uh, it's going on six years in the making. Um, So the concept that I'm trying to get behind with technology is to be able to create and provide an accurate bra fitting for um, a customer without them having to go through the hour-long process of seeing a fitter, and going through, trying on multiple different options to know exactly what's going to fit her and her shape. And so, over the years, there's been hundreds and thousands of women that have gone through and experienced working with thousands of, of different body types in order to be able to qualify as someone to fit for women. Um, I mean there's ladies that have trained me that are still working in this industry and they're 50, 60 years old. So, um... I know for a fact they would look at me with this concept and be like, you're joking. There's no way that you can create an algorithm to do what I do. But... (laughs) 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 Um... (laughs) unfortunately for for their jobs yes it it's possible and i do want to create it i do want to find find the algorithm i do want to support um closing the gap for the 80 percent of women that don't know their size and that will in turn cause a lot of women to lose their jobs and lose their reputation of being a fitter. Um, I don't think they'll become obsolete. I think it'll take a while for a lot of women that currently go through the process to accept a technology as their way to finding their accurate fit. Um, but, you know, eventually it'll it will take over. But, um, unfortunately, Fortunately, that's just how privileged we are with technology to be able to have those have those accurate Measurements Um, other companies are doing it right now with apps. You'll be able to take a picture of your of yourself um, And they'll be able to assess the picture and tell you what size you are Just from looking at the picture with their own brand of clothing. That's essentially the the type of quick accurate measurement I want to be able to provide and so since the market's already going in that way it only just it it's inevitable so
0: and I think that's an important point to make too because there's there has been this this feeling in the entrepreneurial space that people who create those sorts of innovations and and automate things you know there's almost a self-consciousness but but that's the important point to make is and I think and granted I'm a tad biased because I'm an entrepreneur you're an entrepreneur that's Mm -hmm. that's where we're leaning right but that's not necessarily our responsibility there there are several different paths of advancement there's the technological side which or just innovation in general I say technological as a broader term for entrepreneur the job of people in that realm which is essentially what you're doing, and to a large degree what I'm doing with the media company at large, is to advance us, to make things easier, to make things more convenient, to make things more personalized. That's what we're doing. Of course. But the thing that people often misunderstand is that there is another, another societal movement that needs to happen, and it's on the social side. So as we create these technologies that do end up costing us jobs, but making life much better. We need to find ways to allow people to feel the gains economically and be able to still survive even if their job doesn't exist. And that's not a product of them not working hard, right? Everything that's that we build today is a product of the people that came before us. Right. Without it, we wouldn't be what we are today. So the idea that someone should be compensated in some way for the country that they helped build makes a lot of sense but that very idea is very stigmatized of course we're a very work 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 nation and I think that's positive to a very large degree but we also have to recognize when the world is changing and the world is changing like that idea is necessary like we to say that we shouldn't be pursuing these, or we should be banning self-driving cars so truckers aren't out of jobs. Which is, oddly enough, a very often put forth idea.
1: And those jobs are dangerous. Yeah. They're so dangerous. Exactly. I would hate to see one of my family members or friends' parents be injured because of falling asleep at the wheel. Like, it happens. It. And so, technically, we're saving lives by Providing a service like Absolutely. this and providing a technology.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, not even that. It, on truck drivers specifically, there are higher instances of a variety of chronic diseases with yeah. truck drivers. Mm. So, in terms, if we're talking about...
1: <laughs> that just crossed me out. <laughs> Sorry.
0: <laughs> if we're talking about social responsibility, I think it's very socially responsible to create these technologies that alleviate that pain right yeah but the problem is is getting from that technology and allowing the people who were in that realm to either transition to a new role which is extremely difficult and job retraining programs have literal like zero to five percent um rate of success it's, it's very very low mm-hmm. which is unfortunate and you, you'll see most politicians pushing forward job retraining training programs but uh find me a 50-year-old man who's been truck driving for 30 years and try to teach him how to code. I don't think he's going to be very excited about that. Hell no. No, it's well, it's unrealistic
1: it for sure.
0: So, uh, the idea that we can get those advances, those gains that we make and spread them broadly to the people that are affected is the ultimate solution we're working towards, but obviously that's very difficult to do. And you know, people talk a lot about social mobility in America. We're supposed to be the I mean, once again, the American dream. We're supposed to be one of the most socially mobile countries in the world, we're very low on that pecking order. In OECD countries, I think we're like ninth out of 14 in terms of social mobility. In terms of income inequality, we're 29th out of 34 in, in OECD countries. It's bad. Yeah. And it's just this, it's, it's hard to say anything other than brainwashing, this idea that people can still be as socially mobile as anywhere else in the world. And you'll see places, people talk about like the Nordic countries, like Sweden and, and Norway, that that do have a little bit more left-leaning policies that have these safety nets, essentially, for people that don't work for health care, for those sorts of things. Not only do they have lower income inequality, which is kind of a given, and I, I don't think anybody, even on the right, would disagree with the fact that income inequality can be addressed to a degree with those sorts of policies, but they just argue about the merits of them on an ideological standpoint. But you also see socioeconomic mobility going up in those countries, which is very capitalist. And, you know, we're both capitalists. I, I don't think well, I mean, some right wing individuals might call socialist if they wanted to <laughs> say a term, to freak <laughs> people out. But we're Probably very we're, like, we're very idea. we're very nope. much not.
1: Yeah, of course.
0: We're very capitalist. And you know, I think at the end of the day that comes down to just being pragmatic about what works and what doesn't. Absolutely. Neither of us are ideological, and to a large degree, people in this general area where we lie aren't ideological. We're not ideologues. We just want to do what works. And so, to preface this problem, we have to decide what we're working towards, and and what we have to be working towards is compensating those people that are going to be displaced.
1: Absolutely. At the
0: core of income inequality is that. If we want to solve it in any way. Then we're gonna have to do that, and obviously, having a completely equal society where there's no income inequality isn't a desired space, right? Uh, Yeah,
1: I mean, it's not. But having a healthy, yeah,
0: and having a healthy competing level of income income inequality is what we're going for. Of
1: course, we love some healthy competition. Exactly. Exactly.
0: (laughs) Capitalist one (laughs) hundred one.
1: So dead. (laughs) Oh
0: my god! But so to that point you can start working towards solutions right and Absolutely. you know we've talked about uh the situation in austin and we haven't really gotten to gentrification which i guess we can we should probably get to that yeah we, i kind of glossed over that but um you, you're probably more qualified to talk on that than i am just talking about kind of what what that means for people at home
1: so um this is my third year living in chicago i <laughs> sorry nor the Pepsi. I'm, I'm thirsty. Uh, mm. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> oh my God. This is my third year, yeah, living in Chicago. I've lived in Lakeview, uh, Avondale, Logan Square area, and uh, hopefully now the Andersonville area. Um... The Andersonville area, yeah. <laughs> um,. I've, had, I've made, had friends in different parts of the city, stayed in different parts of the city, and just being uh, privileged enough to have a vehicle and drive around and see everything, uh, you notice where people have been displaced. So, um, for example, one of the biggest ones is Pilsen, but I'm going to use <clears throat> a different section. Excuse me, a different section of um, Chicago. So right now off of Larrabee and River West is a, let's say, two, I want to say about two acre plot of land that has about, actually it's more than that. I'd say it's about, about three acre plot of land. That has like low income or used to home low income, and it's about I would say 15 separate long buildings, completely boarded off, shut down, and a fa- fence is wrapped around it, and it's for sale. You could still see people hanging out in the areas, um, essentially loitering, because it's now up for sale Mm -hmm. um but surrounding it is these massive beautiful new high-rise buildings um gorgeous new condos lofts coffee shops everything and this for sale plot of land is smack dab in the center of all of it it's it's kind of an interesting site it's literally like picture of gentrification was next to the diction like next to the definition in the dictionary this would be it and i i couldn't i couldn't i like my i didn't tell my uber driver to stop because i was like what is this like like why hasn't this plot of land been bought up and of course like it's a lot to tear down and it's a lot to you know rebuild up but you can tell that there was still a community there. You can tell that there, tell that there was a community of people that either used to live there or hang out there that was displaced and they're either now homeless or most of their family or friends live in other parts, probably more southwest of downtown. Um, so if you're in the Chicagoland area and wanna check that out, it's off of uh, Larrabee and um Larrabee and Randolph in the west west river west area it's pretty interesting just kind of get puts it into perspective for for people that don't understand for people that um don't have the ability to travel to like the Pilsen or the west side area of Chicago
0: and I think Chicago is kind of a playground for that to, unfortunately, as two Chicagoans, it's yeah. difficult to recognize. And, you, know, you even see it, you know, as um, with the Obama Foundation, the Obama Presidential Center, there's this big debate. And we, I mean, we've talked about this plenty before, the fact that there's been a big debate between community organizers and the Obama Foundation about what it'll do to that area, whether it'll push out low-income tenants and create a probably more economic, economically prosperous area, but at the cost of those individuals who live there right and you know i think that's the reason i think gentrification is very very important in this debate is a because the solution's very difficult to find you know we've definitely had this discussion about how it's such a nebulous problem it's so difficult to actually reach a solution that doesn't you know stifle economic growth but that also spreads the wealth a little bit and as you can see that's a theme of any discussion about income inequality, and I, th- this is across the political spectrum, it's spreading. It's spreading the wealth, creating a stronger middle class. There's going to be no one that disagrees with that. It's just how we get there that matters. And you know, gentrification is one issue that I think is even less well known than automation, but is pretty much on that level. To where you know, if we don't address this, it'll create just these stark divides in our inner cities that exist already, but that only worsen. And so, debating those issues, and and I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to that at some point mm-hmm. in, in a further episode talking about gentrification. how it might even have its own episode because it probably needs to. But, you know, addressing that problem is very much at the root of income inequality. So, you know, there are a lot of different, it's, it's a very nuanced topic. I think that's what people often don't realize about income inequality. They think it's just, a lot of people will pin it down to work ethic and things of that nature, you know, where you start, you're probably, you know, if you start lower class, you might get middle class. You know, that's, that, that's the way people view it. And, you know, I, f- first of all, I think that's destructive. I think people should, if they have great ideas, we should live in more of a meritocracy where those great ideas rise to the top.
1: Absolutely.
0: <clears throat> and we're always work, working towards that. But, you know, it's a multifaceted issue and gentrification is absolutely a part of it. And uh, it's extremely well put and Chicago is a playground for that. So, at this point, we've talked about a lot of the issues, and there are plenty of other ones. There's the cost of higher education, which you and I feel Mm-hmm-hmm. very well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Big yikes. <laughs>
1: Big yikes. For but, sure. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's that's laughs. I
1: gotta be this way? Laughs of pain. Yes. Viewers.
0: Laughs of pain. That, um,
1: that is fun, man. <laughs> <laughs> adulthood's great.
0: Don't you love... Now, here you go. Don't you love that? that you can never get out of? I mean, like, you can't even declare bankruptcy. Isn't that amazing? Oh, absolutely wow. amazing. Just, I just love looking at just... my credit score every Monday. <laughs> <laughs> the best kind of debt. <sighs> wow. I feel like I'm really investing in my future. If investing in my future is looking at my credit score and crying.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, we'll get a good job, right? But... <laughs> And we'll it'll like pay it off in 20 years maybe Yeah 20 years Maybe,
0: Assuming you don't go for your masters Which you need more and more to get jobs that pay well And then you can pay off your student loans But I digress
1: <laughs> It's either that or you work for the government for 10 years Which like no thanks <laughs> Like, I'd rather shoot myself in the face
0: Real innovators <laughs> Real innovators So to that point and, you know, we'll talk about different, uh, very, very broad solutions. I want to talk about a couple broader solutions. But obviously, when you're talking about income inequality, you know, there's addressing higher education costs, which is a more nuanced topic. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it means, you know, setting um, faculty to student ratios at a certain level and ma- making sure schools meet them, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing you know those there's obviously more nuanced debates. same with gentrification they're very nuanced you know whether it be a quota of certain low income housing complexes stuff like that but i want to talk about more broad solutions to like a broader income inequality debate and you know i think the most common one for more moderate individuals is the earned income tax credit and essentially the income tax credit is a tax credit for each dollar you earn essentially it's it's in that realm so it, it it incentivizes you to work but it also helps support you with income, assist, income assistance. And so a lot of more moderate politicians have pushed that forward, but I think, and you know, I don't, you're welcome to disagree with me on this, I, th- I think that's gonna be increasingly difficult with the amount of work people have. Already. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> I, you know, the idea of- If you're
1: pushing 50 hours a week, like, fuck it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, sure. Uh, but I mean, I know a lot of people that would benefit from it, but that are already pushing 45, 50 hours a week with overtime, you know, like, and it's money, but still not enough to, you know, go back to school if you want to go back. You know, get to put your kids through college if you have to exactly. at some in some points, you know,
0: it still holds. You know, I think that a fundamental shift's required and it still holds work as the fundamental indicator of value. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's certainly up for debate. I think there are a lot of people that do that do work certain jobs that they do want to value themselves from their work. And I think that's absolutely a positive thing. I mean, you'll see guys like Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg, they define themselves by their work. But some some people define themselves as a mother or a father or certain Oops. other rules, and so <laughs> you're still gonna hear that. <laughs> I just opened my Pepsi on on the podcast, so you know. It,
1: it's a Lacroix. It's not a beer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we did just talk about student debt, so I, I don't think they'd blame us <sighs> to be honest.
1: Yeah, that's true. To be honest,
0: but you know, there are a lot of people that want to define themselves. For something other than work. And all the earned ca- income tax credit does is incentivize you to, you know, determine yourself by your work. And a lot of people's work isn't their passion. A great number <laughs> of people.
1: Absolutely.
0: And I think that creates I think that just further exacerbates the problem. It's a, it's a band aid more than anything. And so if, you know, the more moderate politicians, it it pulls well, A, because a lot of people aren't super familiar with their inca- earned income tax credit. And B, because it's not leading us to social.
1: <gasps> deep breath.
0: All right, uh, guys, we're gonna we're gonna take a deep breath in. Let's
1: go to a meditation session. Capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry.
0: Anyway, <laughs> but. You'll find, you'll find that's a theme, though. You know... what w- snorting? Well, <laughs> yes. Without a doubt. Anyway. That's a theme. You'll find that's a theme, though. We, like, I, I know we'll continue to do this is make fun of people that... I mean, people that shout socialism when you talk about a certain idea, they're ideological. It's very, very often not rooted in actual policy know-how or intellectual... Right, they
1: just want it. You know what I mean? They want it. They think it's very simple to achieve, which in a sense it could be, but, uh, you just can't like turn over a new leaf in that sense. Like they're hot. It has things evolve too slowly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think that debate also irks me because, you know, this, we don't live in a binary world, right? There's, there's always a spectrum. There's always extremes. And you often hear people yell the extremes. You see people on the far left yell, Oh my God, capitalism is destroying us, and you see people on the right yelling, "Oh my God, socialism will destroy us." Mm-hmm. And I think both are equally d- intellectually dishonest. And we have to avoid those. That's kind of a sidetrack. It's not really related to this, but you'll find that be that'll be a theme with literally everything we talk about. Every episode, we're really trying to avoid intellectual extremes and ide- ideology. We like that isn't going to get in, get us anywhere, and it's not going to solve these problems. You know, we you and I can both be very capitalist, but we can also believe in something that's the more far left principle, because it works. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the ultimate, that's the ultimate advancement of a society is that you may be an ideologue, but you know, you may believe certain things across the board, but when you run into something that works better than what you currently do, we need to embrace it.
1: Absolutely. And
0: that's going to be a theme on this podcast and it needs to be much more broadly, but hopefully we'll expand it beyond this room and us two and a single microphone. That's the goal. So, what's also discussed, which is which is equally prevalent in the intellectual discourses, Nicolette breaks her leg off, <laughs> <laughs> is the idea of wealth tax, and this one, this one is definitely uh, much more left leaning than the in- in- Earned Income Tax Credit. And you know, I cringe a little bit when you hear those uh, an obscenely high tax rates on the, on the rich. I, I do, and you know, some of my liberal friends will cringe when they hear me say that. I'm sure, but. I, I do have to admit one thing in that debate. I'm not in support of extremely high tax rates going to like 70% above. I think that's ridiculous. I think that incentivizes people to not push things to the next level.
1: Absolutely. I think that we're, it'll just only create chaos within that sector of the class. I think that, you know, it'll you're exactly right. It'll allow people to feel that they can't, you know, achieve a certain level. And that's not what we want. That's not the American dream.
0: Yeah. And I, there is certainly, once again, there's, in, there's inherently a balance that we have to strike. You know, higher, even having higher tax rates than we currently have to support programs that are effective in eliminating or reducing income inequality are absolutely something we, we should pursue. But going to extremes to support programs that might not work or might not be cost-effective or just flat unnecessary makes zero sense. But to their point, there is one thing that you have to admit in in an intellectually honest debate about this. Uh, I believe it was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman from New York, talked about extremely high tax rates. It's in the Green New Deal. Yes. And um, if you look back, she brought up the point that the 50s were a great example of Following her tax ideas, and she's actually absolutely right. Uh, in the fifties, there were there was extremely high economic growth, very low income inequality, uh, high socio-economic mobility, and the, the highest marginal tax rate was ninety percent, which is absolutely insane nowadays. It's more than less than half that. Yeah, a little bit less than half that. Sorry. But <laughs> excuse me. So I think her point that. We've, we've thrived as a nation economically um, during a time of high marginal tax rates is fair, and I can't disagree with that, but um, my rebuttal to her point, which would lead me to a little bit more moderate position, is that when you were the bank for the reconstruction of the entire continent of Europe after a world war, you're gonna do alright economically.
1: Yeah, I think you're gonna do just fine. Just fine. You're doing fine. great, sweetie.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Keep
0: rebuilding countries. <laughs> but I think I think that's an, that's a point you need to make in response to that. That while she's absolutely right, and that I think there's a place at the table for a discussion about higher marginal tax rates. Um,
1: it doesn't need to be so extreme. Yeah, there's context to it. Yeah, there's always context. To I mean. You know, we can only get so mad at the rich people, right?
0: <laughs> and I think you generally see there are a lot of more affluent individuals that, that want to pay higher taxes. I mean, the right. popular one is Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett's literally like, well, he pays less less taxes than his secretary. That's why we had the Warren Buffett rule, which created like a minimum amount of taxes that individuals like him could pay. That mm-hmm. was under the Obama administration. You'll see people like Bill Gates say the same thing. Mark Zuckerberg say the same thing. <coughs>
1: think, uh, Trump. Where you at, buddy?
0: Waiting for him to come out and support that, but you know you might be waiting a while. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. the appetite is definitely strong for that. Of course. You you were gonna do a funny thing there, and I cut it off. I'm disappointed now. What? You were making a face like you were gonna say something funny.
1: I I was. I just held it back. I'm sorry, guys. I don't know what's appropriate and what's not.
0: Well, that's what this is literally our first episode, yeah. so we can figure that out on the run. <laughs> I'm definitely gonna have to mark explicit now.
1: Yeah, I, sorry, I used actually
0: I led what I said ass, so technically I began it. Nice, so, John.
1: Is that even a curse word? Ass, isn't
0: it? Would like, it be considered on a platform like Spotify? Like, will it, would I have to mark it explicit? Uh,
1: that's a good question. Actually, yeah.
0: I feel like they should have a list of, like, words you can't say just so I can giggle at what they think's a cuss word.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I just want to see, like, a legal document with all of them listed.
1: <laughs> Let's play games.
0: <laughs> you could, could you just imagine people, like, the legal team at Spotify, like, okay, what do we need to put on this list?
1: <laughs> I want that job. Get the young
0: kids in here. They know, they know what it, what's the, the modern like, cuss words. God,
1: that would be hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now we got to figure this out. Just yeah. for for a humorous point.
0: That'll be that'll be bonus content.
1: <laughs> I didn't know this was turning into an ASMR. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. No. <laughs> that was a whole whole waste of a minute on this I'm podcast. So
1: sorry. <laughs> Not
0: really. <laughs> so anyway. So we've had these you know, ideological debates are inevitably gonna happen. Mm-hmm. But the the point of this podcast is it's called extreme pragmatism. So the idea is to move beyond that, right? Yes. And in this debate I can't think of an I can't think of a, a better medium to embrace pragmatism than income inequality. Because it's so inherently ideological. Like obviously there are debates that are on par with that, climate change is very ideological, you know, things of that nature, globalization, you know, foreign policy is very ideological. Mm-hmm. But I think this is probably the most, and I think it's probably the most affected by, ide- by ideology. So that means that we have to look at really innovative solutions, and we have to discuss them pragmatically and try to get other people to discuss them pragmatically. And so um, forewarning before I talk about this, I am, have been a very vocal supporter of Andrew Yang, and he's running on universal basic income. So I'm clearly a supporter of universal basic income. I'll try to get rid of my ideological slant here. Just kind of the point of this, but I'm definitely a big supporter of it. Um, but I would argue it's not on ideological grounds; it's actual merit. But I can imagine how people would take it that way. So
1: absolutely. So
0: that, I think that's the, it's the most, regardless of whether I like it or not, it's the most prevalent discussion right now. Um, a because people like Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk are behind it, and B because Andrew Yang is running on it, and he started out as a very French candidate. He ran Venture for America, which helped create technology jobs in areas such as Detroit and St. Louis and Birmingham, but he decided that people in government weren't addressing automation correctly, and universal basic income was his solution. So essentially what universal basic income is, I'll explain this because I'm obscenely familiar with it.
1: Yes, please do.
0: So essentially what universal basic income is, is one of the most fundamentally simple safety nets ever, like almost roll your eyes simple. It's getting a lump sum of money uh, either every month or every half year. It doesn't really matter the time period. A consistent sum of money, almost like a paycheck from the government, no strings attached. And, you know, when this began, when, when talk about universal basic income began, which was, you know, decades and decades ago, people inherently rolled their eyes. It can't be that simple. Inflation. There were a variety of different debates, which I think is understandable. You're handing people money. You know, I think that's a fair reaction. But there have been a lot of studies in areas like Poland, um, uh, Stockton, California, uh, Kenya, I think, somewhere in Africa, and Andrew Yang has uh, funded a couple in Iowa and New Hampshire. And I like this idea because it's very simple. And there are also um, there's also a spectrum within supporters of universal basic income about how it would be brought to bear whether it, it would supplement other um, safety net programs like food stamps and would replace them or whether it would completely replace um, social programs and you'll see there's there's a pretty big libertarian following of it of universal basic income because of its simplicity mm-hmm. and there's also a very big socialist following because obviously I don't think I really need to explain that but. You know, I'm not going to sit here and advocate for the idea. I think um, I can have a very extensive conversation on the merits of it. But it's these sorts of solutions that are kind of new and innovative and aren't really ideological that have support from both sides that I think we need to discuss more and I think are ones that are going to lead us to solve these problems. And as as pragmatic discussion about policy and society goes, I think this is kind of the easiest example to bring forth whether you agree with it or not it's an innovative idea that would fundamentally change America and isn't ideological in nature it can be viewed as a libertarian policy or as a socialist policy it's across the board and so I think you know at the end of the day those solutions and you know the rise of the gig economy trying to reorient people the way people work you know what makes people passionate those are the things we need to focus on and not be ideological.
1: So I guess my question would be, um, yeah, like a paycheck would be great, you know? So what about for those individuals that don't, you know, they don't simply even have a home that they can have that paycheck sent to? What happens to those individuals? What happens to the individuals that, um, in a sense, aren't mentally stable enough to handle a paycheck like that that comes to them Mm -hmm. every year? What protocol is taken, and how are like what is it? What other policies are also put into place in order to assure that they're getting what they need from that paycheck?
0: Well, that goes along with the idea of not being ideological, right? Right. There's no silver bullet. Of course. And universal basic income, as great as it would be for a variety of different realms, is not a silver bullet. There needs to be better investment in uh, criminal justice, for example getting people, rehabilitating people so when they come back out in the world and they have this paycheck waiting for them, they can do something productive with it. There needs to be mental health care that's invested in so we can help those people out of those, out of those holes and allow them to use that money productively and to build a life with that check they're getting every month. You know, I think there is a lot of context and I think that's part of the debate. You know, to just say I'm for or against universal basic income simply on its merits, and not discussing the surrounding context is exactly what we're talking about here, right? It's, it's not saying that this is going to solve our problems and that one thing, one page of solutions is going to solve your problems. It's going to be contextual. There's going to be a lot of other things that have to happen. It's a whole systematic change. Universal basic income and any solution that's going to address income inequality is going to be systemic in nature, which means other parts of the system are going to be thrown off because you're changing something so fundamental that you're going to have to change that as well. So I think those, those questions are just as fundamental as the, as the merits of universal basic income, if not more fundamental, because it's absolutely possible that we exacerbate issues with the universal basic income in certain realms. It's absolutely possible. And I think even advocates of that, honest advocates of that, let me, let me put it that way, would admit that that's true. And so you have to create checks against anything that could go wrong. I think you know universal basic income is great because of its simplicity, but you know, simplicity is only good unless it allows us to focus on other issues more extensively. And so if we implement universal basic income and just sit back in our chair and have a glass of wine, then we're not doing it right. Progression's not linear, it's not easy, and it's not something we can take a day off of. And I think that if we implement it, and we move on to addressing things like criminal justice and mental health reform, and healthcare more broadly, and a variety of these realms—you know, retraining programs, that sort of thing—like that—that's how we build a better country. And that's how we build a better society. It isn't—it isn't implementing something and sitting back on our ass and saying, "We did it." Whatever happens, happens.
1: No, I I appreciate you um, clarifying and you know diving deeper on. Because a lot of people, even though they're listening in, they'll still have these thoughts. Well, what if? And even though we're explaining things, it's it's still a whole new thought process that'll that a lot don't that it's hard to understand. And even for me, I I wanna become I want to become someone that thinks more productively like that and I think it's important to continue to share information like that about yeah. how we can, you know, not be so linear and focus on growing exponentially.
0: Exactly. Completely agree. And I think the people, you know, people when they have those thoughts, I think it's, you know, we live in we live in a democracy. You need to bring those questions to bear. We need to understand those questions, we need to be able to address those questions you know we need to have people that are you know secure enough you know mentally to be like okay i fully believe in this idea but i need to be willing to not only like not only listen and you know advocate for your idea blindly but
1: <laughs> there's a bug in the room We're getting attacked <laughs> i'm so sorry <laughs> But so distracting. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. Okay. Oops.
0: It's going to be explicit at this point. Okay, good. But, you know, not only advocate for the idea and, you know, blindly support it, but be willing to say, okay, this is a whole new idea. How do we address it? Right. And, you know, the thing, the thing, to bring this full circle, there are a lot of issues, you know, if if you work in a company and you have this debate about anything and you have, you know, you're really ideological to make a choice, it may not affect many people. This decision, whatever core solution we do implement, obviously there's, we talked about there having a lot of context, whatever's core to it, right? Mm-hmm. We have to be intellectually honest about it because if we make the wrong choice, it's going to hurt a lot of people and it can only exacerbate the issue. This is one of, one of probably a handful of the most fundamental issues of our time and it affects real people. And it can further degrade a variety of other other realms in our life. I mean, literal literal healthcare issues stemming from poverty, and you know, IQ droppings because of poverty. I mean, people's IQ can fall like I think it was tw- there was an experiment where someone was given a check that could pay, and their IQ points fall by 12, 12 points, which is significant. Wow. I mean, poverty literally lowers your IQ because of the mental strain, and all this does is worsen it, right? And so we're talking about real human impact. And I think it's really important to talk about this issue in, in human terms. It affects people. And, you know, everyone has felt that strain where you feel it in your shoulders.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, you do.
1: I mean, I, there's been months I can't pay rent. And it's, it literally... You can't think about anything else. So yeah. if you can't think any, about anything else besides money, then you're putting so much stress on one thing... You're not giving any attention to the parts of your brain that actually need to be fed daily by good, wholesome information. Yeah. I couldn't imagine what it, was, what it would be like to be in any worse situation.
0: Yeah. And I think that's really important to talk about in human terms. So that's, that's all I really have for kind of the meat of it. Um, so if you want to finish off with your overlying, your umbrella thoughts on it, then I'll finish up and then we can call it an episode.
1: I would just want to say that it's so important to view the the situations and view the environment that you live in, and be open to empathizing with people that may not look, talk, anything like you. You know, it's really important that we consider our. Consider everyone as human, just like you are. And we are all bound here. And we are all. Everything within each other is connected. Whether you like it or not, you are in every way, shape, and form very much the same as the person living on the opposite side of the world as you, as far as chemistry goes and far as, as far as bi- biology goes. So treat others. The way that they're meant to be treated and by all means, do not forget where you came from and how that can be a way for you to create impact in other people's lives.
0: And I think for me, for me to finish, I think, I I think impact's really important, but I also think, you know, combining impact and empathy, people need to realize that. Impact isn't definable by one person broadly.
1: Absolutely, impact
0: can be defined different. It can be viewed different. It can be valued differently. Value isn't inherent. And so, if we want to build a better world, obviously we need to come together and have these systemic changes. But fundamentally, change doesn't need to begin at a very human, very personal level. We have to be willing to say, you know, I believe in myself, but I also believe that. I can be wrong, that I can misjudge a person, and that we rise collectively more than anything. You know, a more collective spirit is what moves us forward. I, Any of my success I've had this far or will have, any of your success you, you've had or will have, it's built upon people believing in you. It's built upon a, a nation like that brother. It's built upon a nation that was built by great people that came before us. And that's, you know, we have this fierce culture of of American individualism, and I think it's extremely important. It's productive. It's what makes America great, right? This belief that I can make a difference. But as we believe that, we need to recognize where we come from and what what everything we exist in currently is built upon. Exactly. And if we can, you know, be an individual, embrace everything about us, our our strengths, our flaws, all that stuff that makes you uniquely human, but also recognize that we broadly move forward with empathy and recognizing that we are part of a collective, then we're building a better world. Because at the end of the day, we try to strike balance in everything that we do. And striking a balance between being an individual but also recognizing our place in the world, recognizing that you know we, we rise and fall together It's probably one of the more fundamental realizations that we're gonna need to have. And whether it be income inequality or climate change, climate change probably even more extensively, realizing that we're a collective, it's gonna define who we are. It's gonna define who our kids are. It's gonna define who our grandkids are. It's gonna define generations to come, the choices that we make, whether we choose to be a collective and rise together, or whether we choose to be fierce individuals and not care about anything else and fall. That's the fundamental choice that we have to make.
1: I think that's a great, great point to end on. Actually, we got to do it together.
0: We're all in this together. Oh my
1: God. You said it before me. God (laughs) damn it. (laughs) It wouldn't be a true podcast between you and I, if there wasn't a high school musical. This is true.
0: This is true. (laughs) Um, so next week, uh, we'll be back, uh, we're going to start posting consistently on Sundays. Um, Nicolette will be here because she's, the, she's the co-host now.
1: Oh, that's, that's news. No, just kidding. It's not news. <laughs>
0: Shut up. You've been promoted. Congratulations.
1: Yay, I need a pay raise now.
0: <laughs> well, I've got some news for you then. Oh. <laughs> Damn. But um, next week, we brought it up a little bit today. We, we'll talk a little bit about like, globalization and foreign aid. And that'll be very rooted in empathy of other cultures, things like that. And discussing how to solve our greatest human issues that will need to come together, uh, not only as a nation, but as a world. So we will see you next week. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.